We do indeed have much to be thankful for. When we start making a list, we find that that list is full of page after page of thanksgiving and gratitude. And this church especially in its ministries and in its music and in its education and in its membership continues to do amazing and wonderful things to the glory of God, which as one of your pastors makes me very thankful. I'm also thankful for the music and love of one of our members, Heidi Joy Howard, who will be leaving us with Noella after today's wonderful last music presentation during our offertory service. Please lift up Heidi Joy and Noella in your prayers as they move to Arizona closer to her family. You have blessed us. If you'll stand, please. Yes, yes. You have blessed us in many ways. One of the things about being Presbyterian is that we try to take education seriously. One of our beginning mission statements, searching thoughtfully. Maybe that's why so many of our great universities like Princeton and Harvard and Presbyterian College have been built on the religious foundation of Presbyterianism or Congregationalism, First Cousins. This grounding in education reminds me of the story of the Reverend Dr. Baptist preacher who was invited to preach three days at a country revival. After his inspired sermons were over, an elderly woman came up to him and shook out, out her hand and said, Sir, when they told me that you were one of the uh, preachers, and you as a professor type uh, was going to preach, I was actually not expecting a whole lot out of these sermons, but I may say, for a PhD, you preach like a man with no education at all. <laughs> this morning, being July the 3rd, I would like to make an, or take an educated stab at why we as thoughtful Christians should understand how our Christian faith enlightens and even serves as a building block of our American democracy. And why in some sense I think that democracy is in jeopardy. Hear me now, I am not necessarily saying that our country is in trouble because we are becoming less Christian, but because those of us who claim to be Christian have become less Christian in the Jesus sense. We have lost our saltiness, as Jesus said in the parable. To start this, we immediately uh, think of those radical Christian right preachers who harangue constantly about how we need to take our country back to the Christian nation we, weren't, we were once when our forefathers fought for freedom and democracy 
in reality, do we really want to go back there before the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? There was not a lot of religious freedom. The Puritans were adamant about the fact that you did it their way or you suffered persecution. Religious freedom grew almost inadvertently when Roger Williams, a dissenter, left the Massachusetts colony and moved to Rhode Island, or when William Penn moved to what is now the state of Pennsylvania and began to understand religious freedom apart from doing it exactly the way the church says. For 150 years, there was no religious freedom really until the founding fathers began to come together and imagine a nation that was built on such freedoms. To say that we should go back there is a little bit like saying we should become Puritan again, or what some people accuse the radical Muslims as trying to do in creating Sharia law. I'm coming from the opposite place from that. Not so much wanting our country to be more Christian, although that wouldn't be a bad thing, but to want us as Christians again to be more like Christ. Which is to say that our Christianity has to become more pluralistic and accepting of our differences, and in the end, I think, more democratic. Not just because it is good for democracy, but because it is the Christian thing to do. So I'm going to start with a text that comes from Galatians 5. It's known as the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty, written by the Apostle Paul to the churches at Galatia. It begins in the first verse of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And the slavery that Paul is talking about is the rule that the itinerant Jewish preachers, remember they weren't Christians yet, they were still Jews who believed Jesus was in fact the Messiah. The itinerant Jewish preachers were coming into Galatia and saying, if you do not follow the rules of the Torah, specifically circumcision, you will not be considered a true Jew. Paul says, we have been set free from that, therefore do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And then in 513 he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become servants to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you do, are not consumed by one another. Having been there in his own life, the converted Paul understood that living by the law, circumcision, only burdened and enslaved us. It is instead only by living out of the free grace of Jesus Christ that we are given true freedom 
through his love and sacrifice. This is Paul's sermon over and over again. He reminds us that it is not circumcision, but in fact baptism that defines our membership. Not self-mortification and bleeding, but washing clean and even dying into brand new life. A life that gives our own ego-centered selves over to something greater than we are, and that is a discipleship and following of the one we claim to be the Word of God. This Christian freedom, Paul says, is not so that we can do anything we want. We need to be real careful when someone says, I love this country, it allows me to do anything I want. That's what we sometimes hear 14-year-olds say in response to good parenting. I just want to do what I want. I was getting a Gatorade recently at a convenience store. When I walked up to the cash register, the woman uh, who was on the phone slammed it down, frustrating, uh, looked at me and said, I hate freedom. thought, oh my gosh, I'm about to get into some conversation about uh, states' rights or something. Uh, And so, looking sort of indifferent, she began to expound on what she was saying. Uh, You know, I just got off the phone with my 14-year-old daughter. I don't really hate freedom. I just hate the fact that my 14-year-old daughter is at home with no structure and nothing to do this summer. She's got way too much time on her hands, and she's making bad choices. With too much freedom, we will do anything we want, not only as 14-year-olds, but no matter our age. There must be something to be tethered to. There must be structure. There must be responsibility and expectation. When Paul calls for Christian freedom, he's not saying that anything goes your own indulgences, but that now in this new life in Christ, we are set free to do what Christ wants us to do. Through love and through respect of your neighbor, doing unto them what you would want them to do to you. It's the whole law, he says, summed up in one single commandment. It's not just a Christian commandment, by the way. It is a Jewish commandment, a Muslim commandment, a Hindu commandment, and a Buddhist commandment. All the major religions claim the golden rule as one of the primary building blocks of faith. And as Christians, if we claim to be set free from all the powers and pressures of the cult or the tribe or society that tries to tell us that we are this or we have to do that in order to be a member. As Christians, we are instead tethered to and obligated to live out this law of love. It's as simple as that. This is what we are tied to. And when we do not stay tied to this, to at least own up to it that we are not staying tied to it, we cannot experience the forgiveness of forgive, uh, the freedom of forgiveness and the power of grace. 
Now, saying all this sounds sort of, I know, hooey, gooey, Hollywoodish, not, you know, but I'm not talking about romantic idealism here. The law of love only comes at great cost. A courageous willingness to follow that law that our founding fathers gave themselves over to at great cost, but most especially the cost of Jesus Christ in facing his death. What does it look like, this law of love? Paul says it looks like serving your neighbors, servanthood, just like Jesus did. He never tried to coax or threaten or force others to believe a certain way. He simply loved them where they were, whatever religion, whatever nationality, whatever vocation, whatever race they happened to be. Then, after loving them, he expected them to love others the same way. This looks like freedom from Christ, not a freedom from or freedom to do something, but freedom for something, freedom for something. In our founding father's understanding, the freedom that we have is a freedom for civility, for learning how to live together even though we do not all agree, for something greater than our own needs which I'm afraid we are more and more losing a sense of. Underneath our house of freedom, our founding fathers built ties to a foundation that is built on our rights. Yet those rights are second always to our responsibilities. It should be called the bill of privileges or the bill of responsibilities not the least of which, that we are to treat others the same way that we wish to be treated. Out of respect for the many, we are one, e pluribus unum. And I want to say, as I understand Jesus, this is a very Christ-like truth. We have a responsibility as Christians not only to respect but to love those who are different than us. It's clearly stated black and white in front of us. I probably should stop there. But you know me. So I'm going to push the edge a little. Anita's going, eh? The first thing this law of love holds us accountable for is understanding that our own particular view and vision of politics, the way we vote, the way we think and react, is not universal and absolute and therefore not ultimately right, but limited to our own small, tiny perspective. As they say, we love that saying, I am often wrong, but never in doubt. So what follows in a very limited, tiny perspective way 
from my own quasi-religious, educated perspective, is the way I read and understand what is before us as we try to figure out the way Jesus calls us to live in an ever more complicated and ambiguous world. I know not all of you will agree with me, in which case I honor that disagreement and hope that you can come to me with civil conversation. With all that disclaimer, as Americans, our Constitution may, depending on how you interpret, give us the right to bear assault rifles with 30 armor-piercing bullet clips. But as Christians, as I understand Jesus' way, we have a responsibility not to give in to the fear and paranoia that may propel us to want a gun like that in the first place, whose only purpose is to maim and kill other human beings as easily and as quickly as possible. I know the argument, once you make one rule, it's like the camel who gets his nose in the tent, but there are rules already. You do not have the right to own a heat-seeking missile, a true machine gun, or a bazooka. As Christians who follow the Prince of Peace, we are called to work for better ways to help govern who gets guns and who should not. Number two, as Americans, our Constitution may give us the right to freedom of speech, which may be interpreted as the right to tell lies about our political opponents, to cover up and stretch the truth, to instill fear in the population with hyperbolic and untrue words about Muslims and immigrants, or to hold semi-clandestine airport meetings with the Attorney General. But as Christians, we have a responsibility not only to not give in to this and this kind of rhetoric and phobia and mistruth, but to call it down, especially when it is done by those claiming to be Christians, whether they be Presbyterians or Methodists. As Americans, number three... We may have the right to abortion regardless of the reasons, depending on the stage of fetus growth. But as Christians, we have a responsibility to decide, first, whether we have the right to intimate relationships when there is no commitment to intimacy. And second, whether bearing the child might be the most godly way to respond, maybe through the loving care of the mother by the church, there is one, or something that results in adoption, or supported single parenthood, or, God forbid, the expectation that the father will man up and seek marriage or at least responsibility. Not in every case should these options be followed regarding abortion, but in way more cases than there are now as Christians Abortion is a tragedy and should only be the last desperate resort which, if chosen, should not end in shame but forgiveness. Four, 
As Americans, we can take the sides and have the right to demonize the other if we choose. But as Christians, we may not do this. We may not agree with each other. We must follow the law of love nevertheless in those disagreements. Otherwise, as Paul caustically warns, as we bite and devour each other, take care not to be consumed by each other. Civil discourse gives the benefit of the doubt to the other and listens intently, trying to understand what they are saying. For Christians, the question, you see, is not so much about our right to do what we want as our responsibility to follow the way of Christ Seasoned by the salt of love, at least from our Christian perspective, our country and our world would look like a lot better place to live in. Seasoned by the salt of love. When Thomas Jefferson was invited, uh, was named president, he invited James Madison's wife, Dolly, to help him host official events since he was at the time unmarried. It was not cupcakes that Dolly brought to him, but instead a plate of hospitality and democracy. When he held a dinner in the White House, he would scandalize foreign ministers and aristocrats by receiving them in carpet slippers. So anxious was he to break with traditional formalities that at official dinners, guests sat down pell-mell, first come, first served. Jefferson believed that republicanism required a revolution in manners and customs as well as in government. In other words, the seat you get at the table is not based on power or aristocracy or wealth or even religion. This left many of his aristocratic guests angry for the rest of their lives. But Jefferson knew that what goes on in the house should be symbolic of what goes on in the nation. It is said that Jefferson was not really a Christian, but instead a theist or a deist. I had to believe that whatever it was that drove him and all of our founding fathers, it was somehow based on this Christian value that we owned up to today of hospitality, especially when he, Jesus, sat at the Lord's table and invited those ragged, diverse, and mostly unfaithful disciples to sit with him and eat in that last supper gathering. It was the great Republican ideal he instilled in them. Everyone is welcome to this table. A table where Jesus serves them and loves them and then sets us free from the burdens of righteousness and guilt that surely follow our denials. And in that food, you see, He obligates us. He feeds us. He nourishes us. 
to live in the world the way he did. We will sing in our third hymn, Weldon, uh, James Weldon Johnson's amazing, powerful African-American freedom song, Lift Every Voice and Ring. It's going on now at the Comer. Lift is the, is the presentation there. I commend it to you. As we sang these songs, this song, let us listen to the words and know that it is only as we are all lifted up in freedom that any of us are lifted up in freedom. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>